See, 30 years ago, you had the first digital samplers, and they changed everything overnight. All of a sudden, artists could sample from anything and everything that came before them. Hello, and welcome to episode 17 of Fenster's Funky Sevens. My name is Fenster. The idea behind this podcast is that I'm a record collector, and I have a large collection of 7-inch singles. So for each episode, I take 7 of those 7-inch singles and rearrange them into some sort of theme or genre. And the theme for this episode is the history of sampling, and preset hits. Sampling is like alchemy. It's an art form that rearranges space and time. And the producers who build on the tradition use sonic DNA from the past to cook up the future. In this podcast, I'm trying to cover 80 years of sampling history from the 40s to the present day. It's hard to include everything, but if you think I left out something important, please let me know. There is some crossover in this episode with other episodes of Fenster's Funky Sevens, particularly episode 12, The Seven Stages of Old School Hip Hop, episode 5, Drum Breaks and Novices Guide, and episode 2, The Electronic Pop Timeline. After the sampling history, the seven part of the podcast is seven songs that use factory presets on synths, drum machines, or sample packs as the basis for the tune. I'd love to know about any other songs that fit this category, so please let me know. Okay, let's get started. Now, even when you know how it works, it can still feel like magic. At that time, there were no synthesizers. Computers hadn't been heard of. So anything you could lay your hands on that you could record live over a microphone and get it onto tape, and then you could manipulate it once it was on tape. When we think about the conventional definition of sampling, taking pieces of music from one recording and using it to make a new piece of music, this goes back about 40 years to the early 80s. But if you take a broader definition of sampling as taking a recorded sound and manipulating it and using it in a different context, you can go back another 40 years to the 1940s. Magnetic tape to record sound was invented by German Fritz Flummer in 1929, and the first practical tape recorder and player The magnetophone was developed by German electronics company AEG in 1935. The political situation, what with the fascism and the rise of Nazis, meant that these innovations stayed in Germany. Around the world at this time, all radio broadcasts went out live, and the Nazis used their ability to record and play back events as propaganda and to confuse the Allied forces. For example, they would broadcast a speech from Hitler at a rally in Frankfurt, when he was actually nowhere near that city. And another thing they would do was broadcast recordings of symphony from, for example, Dresden Opera House at the same time there was an Allied bombing raid on the city. How could the orchestra keep playing through that terror? Ludwig van Beethoven's Neunte Sinfonie.
After the war, the technology became widely available, with the Americans taking two magnetophones back to the USA. One of the first people to see the potential of tape was Bing Crosby. At that time, he had a hugely popular weekly radio show that he had to perform live twice, once for audiences on Eastern Times and then again for the West Coast. He invested in a company called Ampex and soon he could pre-record his show once whenever he wanted and his schedule became a lot more flexible. <laughs> The reason he left NBC was because they wouldn't let him do the tapes. He was really the one that broke that barrier because his little firm was the man that hired Jack Mullen, the man who liberated the tape, as uh -huh. they say, from Germany uh -huh. at the end of the war and bought the first tape machine over here we used. Bay, of course, properly so, being a singer, he wanted to do his, at least his musical numbers, so they would be perfect and you don't have to worry about those. NBC would not allow him to do any tape or recordings of any kind on NBC, and he said, goodbye. But if the Americans and Germans used magnetic tape in a practical and efficient way, the French just wanted to dick about with it. Composer Pierre Schaeffer developed a technique called musique concrète, which can be considered as the first form of sampling. He recorded real-life sounds on tape and then manipulated or cut up the tape to create new sounds. One of his earliest works came in 1948, a sound collage of train sounds, a tout au chemie de fer, or railway study. He also started to change the speed of the tape to create new sounds. This technique is explained in a 1979 BBC documentary, The New Sound of Music. The arrival of tape recorders meant even the most basic sounds could be transformed. Experimenting with music was no longer the monopoly of the imaginative musician. Even the earliest of tape recorders could manage quite happily the faithful reproduction of three notes twanged on the piano. It was the possibilities for unfaithful reproduction which also caused excitement. On this length of tape are those same three notes. If I wind this piece of tape through the machine by hand, at a speed which isn't constant and in a direction which is forever changing, those three twangs become a collection of quite different sounds. In fact, if we re-recorded this performance on another machine, I might end up with a sonata for three notes and tape recorder. 
The documentary also explains how cutting up the tape and rearranging it or reversing the sounds can get different effects. Let's find the start of the last note. There it is. I'll cut the tape there. Now I can take the end note, turn it the other way round, and put it back, ready to join up. It should sound something like this. results of this experimentation was first performed in 1950 by Schaefer and his colleague Pierre Henri. Symphony pour un homme seul or one man symphony is 20 minutes long but here are some of the highlights. By the way, Pierre Henri is probably best known for Psych Rock, the tune that inspired the Futurama team. It was released in 
I consider the two Pierres to be the DJ Cool Herc of Music Concrete. They came up with a hugely innovative and creative concept, but now we needed a Grandmaster Flash to bring technique, finesse and mathematical precision to the form. Enter the BBC Radiophonic Workshop, established in 1957 by Desmond Briscoe and Daphne Oram. The purpose of the workshop was to create sound effects, jingles, incidental music and themes for BBC television programmes. Many talented men were employed at the workshop, but today I'm going to focus on three women. The first is Daphne Oram, who despite setting up the workshop, only worked there for a year, as she found the BBC to be too restricting. She made her own independent studio. <laughs> Here in a country studio in Kent is Daphne Oram, a pioneer of a new type of music. Unlike the traditional composer, she uses no musical instruments and no musicians. She produces sounds by electronic devices, some of them sounds unlike any ever heard before. She needs no concert hall or opera house to put on a performance. She can do it on a tape recorder. The sounds, produced electronically, are recorded on tape. By mixing the sounds on various tapes together and playing them at varying speeds, she can produce all sorts of different combinations. Already, electronic music is being used in films, television and the theatre, and there have been concert performances too. There are some people who think the music of the future will sound like this. Daphne seemed to revel in the idea of undiscovered sounds, and as she was not limited by the rules of the BBC, worked a lot in advertising. Here's a space age ad for Lego from the 1960s. It's Mission Moon for Studs Lego. He's off to pioneer the empty spaces of the moon with Lego, his wonderful building bricks. Build bridge. Lego build it. Build moon tractor. Lego build it. Lego, the wonderful building toy, builds a whole wide world for you. And the bubbly washing machine advert from the same period. Do your wash the new way, the tumble wash way. The Liberator Tumble Wash costs only 75 guineas, and look what it does for you. It washes, it rinses, and it spins, all in one tub. Turn one dial to heat the water as hot as you want. Turn another dial to wash, with a gentle tumbling action that forces suds through every fiber. One lever rinses till the water's crystal clear. Another lever spins. You never touch the clothes yourself until they're spun and sparkling clean. Wonderful tumble wash. The only 75 guinea one tub washing machine. Made by English Electric. Made to last. And from 1967, Roto Lock. An eerie carousel ride for a film soundtrack, Liz and Sally. Thank you. 
Daphne talked about her vision for the future of electronic music. I want machines, rather like computers, to be an extension of the arm of the composer. With the multi-track tape recorder, one builds up track against track, in a way that's going on, of course, in the pop world and the serious music world and all over the place. Another lady who worked from 1959 to 1966 in the workshop was Maddalena Fagadini. To me, Maddalena's strength seems to be precision and the creating rhythms. This is a piece she made for the Ideal Homes exhibition. Beat Madalena made to be used as a TV time interval signal was released as a single under the name Ray Cathode. This was called Time Beat. The instrumentation over the top was provided by none other than fifth Beatle George Martin. Madalena talked about how she found sounds to sample and create her pieces. If you're using natural sounds, you could use anything. You use, you can use a door banging, you can use uh, uh, glass breaking, you can use the wind that's blowing down the road. Um, you can knock anything. That, that's not bad, knock. Right? And you record it and play with it and play it backwards, forwards echo, double it up, speed it up, slow it down. I think the B-side of the Time Beat single really shows Madalena's talents. For Waltz in Orbit, 
George Martin provided her with some jazzy piano and she built a precise, funky Latin percussion track to accompany it, all by knocking on tables and getting those tape machines to play precisely. <laughs> took Daphne's fascination with sound, Madalena's precision and added it to her own mathematical and musical talents was Delia Derbyshire. Delia worked at the Radiophonic Workshop from 1962 until 1973. Delia had a degree in mathematics and used her knowledge to create wonderfully atmospheric music. This track, Blue Veils and Golden Sands, evokes the searing heat of the Sahara, made from the sound sample from hitting a lampshade. robot voices she created for science fiction program Out of the Unknown in 1967 wouldn't sound out of place on a mid-90s Aphex Twin album. Delia talks so modestly about recording the sounds, manipulating them, cutting up the tapes to make melodies, like it's the most normal thing in the world to do. Each clunk you hear in this clip is another tape machine being turned on, another machine that has to run in precise sync with all the others. If the sound we want exists already in real life, say, we couldn't go and record it. The sound I want for the rhythm of this piece 
Uh, it needs to be a very short, dry, hollow wooden sound. I can get from this. And then the sound for the punctuating chords. I want the sound of a short, wise string being plucked. And then all we have to do is cut the notes the right length. We can join them together on a loop and listen to them. And then with the higher notes of the rhythm, again we join them together on a loop and play it in synchronization with the first eight. Over this, we can play the sound of the plucked string, which can be either in the form of a loop, like this, that's in synchronization, or in the form of a band on a tape. By far the Radiophonics Workshop's most famous piece is the Doctor Who theme, created by Delia Derbyshire in 1963. documentary The Alchemists of Sound explains just how much work went into creating it. It was created using music concrete, very basic electronic music techniques in that she used found sounds, things like a plucked string as a basic sound for the bass line, and basic electronic sign tones and, and white noise filtered and cut and shaped. It was very meticulous in that every note had to be created as a separate piece of tape and they cut together to create the rhythm and the melodies all on separate pieces of tape, one piece for each line. No multi-track tape recorder, so the final mix was done by playing all these uh, pieces of tape together simultaneously off multiple tape machines and hoping they would stay in synchronization from start to end. George Martin took all the music concrete techniques he learned with Maddalena Fagadini and put them to use on the Beatles' 1966 album, Revolver. The Beatles had given up touring at this stage and had no intention of performing these songs live, and so were open to all the trickery the studio could offer them. The song Tomorrow Never Knows is made up of 16 
tape loops running in sequence. The repeating drum break was made by recording Ringo play, cutting individual elements, the kick drum, the snare, the fill, and putting them back together, including a reverse cymbal, to make the beat. Nothing like this had ever been heard on a pop record before. In 1967, American minimalist composer Terry Riley held a performance in a Philadelphia nightclub with a console mixer, a Moog synthesizer, and two edited copies of a pop R&B song, You're No Good, by the Harvey Arvern Dozen, on two reel-to-reel -reel tape machines. The performance laid the groundwork of the forthcoming techniques in sampling, dub mixing, beat juggling, and plunder phonics. The original is 20 minutes long, here's some of the highlights.
the late 60s in the USA, tape cut-ups for comedic purposes became popular. An example of this is the Looney Landing by Captain Zapp and the Motortown Cut-Ups on Motown. A spoof radio documentary about a rocket launch interspersed with snippets of famous Motown hit songs. The record was, I quote, produced by David and William in their spare time. Ladies and gentlemen, the time has come for the first space flight to land a man on the moon. We're looking for Captain Zap, the leader of this loony, er, lunar mission, but he's nowhere to be found. There he is, over there crawling inside a garbage can. Captain, what are you doing? Sir, in just a few moments, you'll be heading thousands of miles into space. Aren't you excited? I see your wife is here, Mrs. Zap. How do you feel about this? Your spacecraft is the largest one ever used. Can you describe it for us? The big moment is almost here. Before you go, do you have any last request? And now let's tune in on our television from inside the spaceship and pick up the astronauts' last words on Earth. In 1971, French producer Michel Bernalc took a 1967 field recording of the drumming by 25 members of the Yagoma tribe in Burundi from an album called Musique du Burundi. Bernalk used tape overdubbing techniques to add bass and piano and scored himself a hit in the UK and Australia with Burundi Black. It's open for debate, but could this be the first incident of a sample drum break?
Joni Mitchell did something similar on her song The Jungle Line in 1975. Burundi drummers also showed up on the Beastie Boys 1989 album Paul's Boutique, an absolute masterclass in sampling on the track 57 Christie Street. Probably songs like that that made Beastie Boy MCA say this in 1994. What is considered the first digital sampler came from Australia in 1979. A hugely innovative device with an equally huge price tag. The Fairlight CMI is a digital synthesizer, sampler and digital audio workstation. It came with a touchscreen visual interface and was like nothing that had come before. Out of nowhere comes the Fairlight CMI. It's got it all. It's got a workstation where you can actually see the waveform on a computer screen for the very first time. You can play music on a keyboard and you can see that music in a visual form in this beautiful bright green neon just flowing across the screen and you can sample your own sounds. The Fairlight was the device that introduced the term sample to music. Any analog real-life sound could be recorded by the microphone and pitched across the keyboard. Initially half a second of sound could be captured. Peter went off and, and designed an analog to digital converter like literally in a few days he came back with this design and thank god look at this so then we could sample 
sounds directly recording them to memory and then play that on the keyboard. Hello! And we have to wait a couple of seconds now for the sound wave to come up. There it is. Hello! Hello! Hello, dear. Every aspect of the Fairlight had to be custom made, and because of this, its cost put it out of the reach of many musicians. But a very early fan was Peter Gabriel. Here's Peter sampling the sound of breaking glass with a Fairlight. See, if I pick up this mic, for an example, and uh, press S for sample, we can put in the sound, I hope. One, two, three, four. I think we did it! <laughs> no, it looks good. This sound was later included on a sample disc and so became a Fairlight preset. Peter showed his friend Kate Bush the Fairlight and the Glass Smash preset appeared on Kate's 1980 hit single Babushka, the Fairlight's first appearance in the charts. Kate Bush's 1985 hit, Running Up That Hill, familiar to old people and Stranger Things fans alike, was made entirely on a Fairlight, using the cello preset. The beat came from a Lindrum, but more about that later. Without a doubt, the most famous Fairlight preset was the Orc 2, sampled from a classical music record, Stravinsky's Firebird Suite. And I have the great honor of turning this podium over to Igor Stravinsky, who will conduct for us and for all the future the last three scenes of his ballet masterpiece, The Firebird.
this is arguably the most famous Fairlight sound. It was initially sampled by Peter Vogel and David Vorhaus. It was virtually synonymous, you know, with the Fairlight. And I've done sessions myself where I've been um, asked to go to a studio to do some Fairlight programming and people would say, have you got that sound? Have you got that? The orchestral sound, yes, we have that sound. We've also got thousands of other sounds, but uh, it's always the orchestral sound that, um, that people wanted. Once it got onto a few hip hop records, it then quickly spread throughout the sort of the, the whole musical firmament. UK producer Trevor Horn talked about using the Fairlight on Owner of a Lonely Heart by Yes. This is from the Trailblazers podcast. It was one of the original sounds in the very first Fairlight. It was big. It, it, I remember it, I think in 1982 it cost £18,000, yeah. which is a lot of money. You could buy yeah. a house for £18,000. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this was a, a keyboard, white keyboard, and a, a central brain yeah. section. Yeah, yeah. And one of the sounds that it had was orchestrap. Right. <laughs> I remember hitting it, whoa! Oh, I like that. Yeah. And used that, and... Uh, the Orkstab, I think I used it in a few places on Lexicon of Love album. Then, you know, the Orkstab's on Owner of Lonely Heart. Yeah, of course. By that point, I'd refined it all a bit. <laughs> you were king of the Orkstab. <laughs> king, yeah. king of the whiz-bang. Sample.com says that the Orc 2 has been sampled in at least 224 tunes. Here's a short selection. Interestingly enough, Owner of a Lonely Heart might also contain the first ever sample drum break, in a hip-hop sense at least. Now that we come back to talking about that record, Owner of Lonely Heart, I've got to ask you about the breakbeat in that, because you've got this break, uh, which which I believe is is by Cool Is Back by Funk Inc. Oh, and that's the, 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 that the thing that's at the very beginning <laughs> and sort of two-thirds of the way oh, right. through that... that bam, 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 bam. That. I don't know what the heck that is. I don't know where it's from. I've never. Oh, well, that's a shame. To it. That's a shame because I was going to ask you how you how you found it. <laughs> I found it on a cassette that okay. Malcolm McLaren gave me. Because because there are people who say that that is 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 one of the first times that a sampled or maybe the first time that a sampled breakbeat. Yeah, it was a cassette. Yeah, it was just it was a cassette that I had, and uh, it had all kinds of scratching stuff on it. Yeah. By the by the time we got to that middle part of Owner of Lonely Heart. I remember taking the, the cassette in and giving it to JJ and saying, find some stuff on that, we're going to need something. And JJ found that break and then the, the yeah. you know, I wouldn't know where the original came from. All right. What's it? Um, it's Cool Is Back by Funk Inc., which was, a, 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 I think, a cover version of a Cool and the Gang record. Cool Is Back, Funk yeah. Inc. yeah. Yeah. So it was just a, a thing on a tape that Malcolm had given you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> amazing. On the record. And I was surprised that it's used at the very beginning of the Yes 
record as well. That's unusual. Starts with that first. The reason I put that there is to give the guitars when they come into context. It's like big space, little spaceship, big spaceship kind of thing, you know? Yes. So, right. so the sound quality is really rubbish of that loop. Yeah, it's sounds telephone. So when the guitars come in, they come and hit you a bit hard. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then, and then at the end of the intro. States, Herbie Hancock was the Fairlight fanboy. He turned up on an episode of Sesame Street in 1993 to give the kids a demonstration of how it works. One of the kids was four-year-old Tatiana Ali, who would go on to play Ashley in The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. How about if I show you about all of this stuff? Wanna do me a favor? What? Could you just say your name into this microphone? Tatiana Ali. Watch this. Tatiana Ali. <laughs> <laughs> Who is that? <laughs> you ever heard, heard yourself sound like this, though? Bacchiamali! <laughs> Do it in low. Isn't that funny? But you know what? I'm going to show you something different. Watch this. There's two of them. Right? Watch this, though. <laughs> Do it for you now. I'm going to show you a whole room full of Tatiana Ali's. Holy. You want to see that? Watch this. <laughs> Competition to the Fairlight came from the Synclavier. The original was released as an FM frequency modulation digital synth in 1977 with the whopping price of about $200,000. Only about a dozen of these were sold, mostly to universities. The Synclavier II came out in 1980, but was still very expensive, costing around $40,000, but included digital sampling. The Synclavier seemed to be most prized for its FM synth functionality, regarded as an excellent synth with add-on sampling, whereas the Fairlight is a sampler with additive synth capacities. Frank Zappa loved his Synclavier. Well, it's a machine called the Synclavier, which is, uh, this is the machine that produced that Grammy award-winning song, Jazz from Hell. <laughs> well, it allows you to um, per perform on the keyboard. You could play a composition on the keyboard, uh -huh. which is then stored in the computer memory, and then you edit what you played. Or you can type in information on this keypad here and uh, edit what you played. Yeah, you can have any kind of instrument you want, and that's done through sampling. Yeah. Do you think uh, a Beethoven or a Brahms or a Mozart would compose this way if they had access to this kind of machinery? Well, if they didn't, they'd be missing out. It's a great machine, and it uh, allows you to do a lot of work fast. Yeah. It's like a word processor for music.
Michael Jackson famously used a synclavier preset at the start of Beat It in 1982. Clavier even got to show off its sampling capabilities on an episode of The Cosby Show with Stevie Wonder in 1985. How would you like to be on my new album? Yeah. What sound do you think a giraffe makes? <laughs> Beautiful, I got you in my Sinclavier. Mommy, I'm on Stevie's new record. I, I need a little more help, Miss Vanessa. Oh. Yes, sir. Um, I mean, Stevie. How old are you? I'm 12. I bet you got a boyfriend. Well, sort of. <laughs> He's in love with Robert. <laughs> so why don't you say Robert? Robert. Oh, say it like you really mean it. Robert. <laughs> Robert. 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 <laughs> Denise, how old are you? 17. Phil, how old are you? 15. 17 and 15. Who's a singer? Well, I, I want to be. Can you rap? Yeah. What's happening? Go ahead and rap for me one time. No. <laughs> and what would you say at a party? Jamming on the one. Jamming, jamming on the one. Jamming on the one. Denise, it's your turn. I don't know what to say. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what to, I don't know what to say. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. And now, Claire Huxtable. Don't you ask me how old I am. Oh, I ain't gonna ask you how old you are. I just want you to sing. Oh, I don't Come know. On. Go, oh, hey. go, sing, sing. Once go. in a lifetime. Okay, yeah. I'm gonna do this for my children. <laughs> just, a, just a simple la. That's, that's all I need. La. La, 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 la. Hot. This is really hot. You know what? Mm. I've even got your husband saying baby. Uh, Let me see. Baby. Baby. Okay, let's see that. Baby. Emu Systems got in on the act in 1981, making the emulator. They stripped away a lot of the synth features of the Synclavier and the Fairlight and focused on the sampler. The cost was still a hefty $8,000. The Pet Shop Boys 1986 number one, West End Girls, was made entirely on an emulator.
your head, you think you're mad, too unstable Kicking in chairs and knocking down tables in a restaurant In a West End town, call the police, there's a madman around Running down, underground, to a dive bar In a West End town In a West End town, a dead end world The East End boys and West End girls In a West End town, a dead end world The East End boys and West End girls The emulator got its movie moment in 1986 as well, when Ferris Bueller rang in sick. Hello? Hi. Hi, Ferris, how's your bod? <coughs> oh my god, you're dying? Uh-oh. <coughs> Is it serious? Oh, uh, I don't know, I hope not. I think I may need a kidney transplant. Shit. Are you upset? <coughs> Excuse me. Think you'll be alive this weekend? Yeah, I'd say I will. Great, maybe I'll see ya. Bye. In 1979, Roger Lynn designed the LM1, the first drum machine to use samples of actual drums rather than synthesized sounds. It cost over $5,000 but was still popular. Prince used it on When Doves Cry. and the Human League on Don't You Want Me. In 1982, the more affordable Lindrum came out with much improved features, particularly ones that allowed users to program their own beats. The Lindrum became a huge part of the sound of 1980s pop music. We've already heard it on Running Up That Hill by Kate Bush. Here's Pat Benatar's Love Is A Battlefield from 1983. And you'll never listen to Wham's Last Christmas the same way after noticing the goofy drum fills.
1984's LIN 9000 was less successful, with users reporting a number of bugs in its interface, but an important feature for our story is that it included 18 soft rubber pads so that users could tap out by hand or finger drum their own rhythms. Rick Ashley's Together Forever uses a LIN 9000. In 1986, Japanese electronics company Akai released the S900, shortly followed by the S950 and S1000. This offered a lot of sampling power at a price, around $2000, that was almost affordable to street level producers. YouTube's Sample King gives us some stats. But then, in 1986, they put it together and came up with the S900. Now this thing can do 63 seconds of sampling at 7.5 kilohertz in stereo. Now the higher up you go, let's say you go to 40 kilohertz, that means you can do 11.3 seconds of sampling in stereo. You can hold 32 samples at once. And it's eight voice polyphony. In Fencers Funky 7's episode 12 about hip hop, I featured a lot of tunes that were created using the S900. So here's some from other styles of music, like Black Box's Ride on Time. Fatboy Slim's Rockefeller Skank was made using two S950s. In 1988, Akai and Roger Lin got together and combined Lin's experience with user-friendly interfaces and Akai's sampling power. The result was the MPC-60. MPC stands for Music Production Center. The MPC was an all-in-one sampling and sequencing workstation containing 16 soft rubber pads to trigger samples. The MPC-60 and future updated models became one of the workhorses of hip-hop and dance music. Jay Dilla became one of the MPC's most celebrated users. This is You Love from his 2006 album Donuts. 
PC wasn't just for hip-hop, it was also a favourite machine of German house and techno producer Ian Pooley. The MPC always has a special groove. Hello everyone, this is Ian Pooley. Today I'm going to show you how I work with my MPC 3000. It's actually the one that I bought in 1995 when it came out. So the very same one, always been using all my life. Actually, this went on tour with me many, many times, but it's still doing the job, working great. In 1986, Emu released the SP-12 and in 1987, the more powerful SP-1200. This machine became a favorite of many hip hop producers. A tribe called Quest Q-Tip talks about how it advanced his production skills. I came from a tradition of making pause tapes. If you heard of a piece, you'd have to record it, rewind it, get that piece back, record it, rewind it, get that piece back, record it, rewind it, get that, like, for hours and hours. So the SP-1200, once I saw that shit, I was like, fuck all that. Pete Rock knew how to get the absolute most from his SP-1200. Back in the 90s, you know, I was married to the SP-1200. You know what I'm saying? You gotta get every element to the beat in 10.2 seconds. So what I did was put the record on 45. You know, played it faster. Then things slowed it down in here. Boom, bap, that's it. I don't care what's new out. There's no better machine in the music industry. Often hailed as one of the greatest hip-hop producers of all time, DJ Premier was also a huge fan. Lars Professor taught me things that, that got me to another level. The way he's truncated beats, he was like, T -t 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 and he was doing it almost like he was doing a magic trick. And I would just stare at him just like, damn, how do you do that? He taught me how to take it to that level. And the SP-1200 had the littlest bit of sampling time, but I like the limitations so that you're forced to be creative with that little bit of time and still make an ill ass beat. In August 1991, Microsoft and IBM introduced the Waveform audio file format, a standard file format for storing audio on PCs. It provided the sounds used on Windows 3.1, like the startup chime. Wave files are bulky, taking up about 10 megabytes for one minute of audio. The average home PC didn't have the storage or processing power to get much use from them. The typical floppy disk at the time held just 1.6 megabytes of data. So unless you were a big fan of You Suffer by Napalm Death, they were pretty useless for storing and transferring music. <laughs> Wave files lower sound quality cousin, 
but also with much lower storage requirements, about one megabyte a minute. The MP3 was launched a few months later in December 1991. August 1991 was also when the World Wide Web was made available publicly for the first time, thus launching the internet. August 91 was a busy month. Throughout the 90s, as computer processing power and storage improved, various programmers and companies started to work on and develop music production software. Some had been working on it from the 80s. In the same way, the two Pierres were dicking about with magnetic tape, these programmers were dicking about with wave files, figuring out how to edit, EQ, filter, process, time stretch, layer, compress, and pitch shift, coming up with ways to digitally add reverb, delay, phasing, distortion, vibrato, tremolo, and a host of other effects. Studios moved away from tape and entered digital recording. Conceptually, as there were now increasingly less real instruments and analog synths involved, everything could be considered a sample. Digital audio workstations or DAWs were being born. Cubase was an early one. Sound design became Pro Tools. Creator morphed into Logic and GarageBand. Fruity Loops developed into FL Studio. Recycle and Rebirth are now known as Reason. Acid PH1 became Acid Pro. Ableton started in 1999. Reaper and Audacity are available for free and there are many more. Producer Jason Vorpakel explains the impact all this had. The digital audio workstation created something very unique. Instead of having to have a tape-based, gigantic studio room, you could get all of your audio mixed in high fidelity on a little tiny computer. It allows you to record in a multi-track format, mono, stereo, whatever. Edit all the takes down, mix them using the plugins that you have on your computer, even master them and create a professional high quality mix of music all in your computer. Essentially, it took the control of who gets to make a record and who doesn't out of the hands of studio and label executives and put it into the very eager and often sweaty hands of the average musician. The first signs of the use of software and music production started showing up in the mainstream in the early 2000s with the mashup trend. In 2001, freelance Hellraiser made an instrumental track from the Strokes Hard to Explain and put Christina Aguilera's Genie in a Bottle a cappella on top to create a stroke of genius, probably using the software package Acid Pro, which was released in 1998.
Also in 2001, Richard S. smashed Whitney Houston with Kraftwerk on I Wanna Dance With Numbers. In 2003, fledgling hip-hop producer Ninth Wonder was called to Jay-Z's studio in New York. In a studio filled with the best hardware and veteran producers, he made a beat on Fruity Loops on his IBM laptop. It took him only 20 minutes and it ended up on Jay-Z's Black Album. Definitely put on the spot type thing, you know what I mean? Like, it could have made me or broke me. Just, you know, like, kid, you're not really made for this. And, and not only that, it was, you know, people, Clark Kent was in there, just blazes in and out, Freeway was in and out. You know, it was just the ultimate, just put on the spot. So I just put myself back home. You know, I just sat myself out the place and, and say, you know, just do what you've been doing. And so I made the beat in about 20 minutes. And he came back, he put the headphones on, he said, yeah, that's it, throw it on the boys. Yeah, I told you niggas nine, ten times, stop fucking with me. I done told you niggas nine albums, stop fucking with me. I done told you niggas nine on me, stop fucking with me. You niggas must got nine lives. Knife wonder, put that knife in you. Take a little bit of life from you. Am I frightening you? Shall I continue? I put the gun to you. I let it sing you a song, I let it hum to you. The other ones sing along, now it's a duet. In 2004, Danger Mouse used Acid Pro to take the a cappella of the Black Album and mash it with the Beatles White Album to create the Grey Album. 
Sadly for podcast narrative continuity, Tret wasn't included on the Grey album. So this is the Black Album's big hit, 99 Problems, mashed with Helter Skelter by the Beatles. If you having girl problems, I feel bad for you, son. I got 99 problems, but a bitch ain't one. I got the rap patrol on the cat patrol. Foes that want to make sure my cast is closed. Rap critics to say he's money cash holes. I'm from the hood, stupid, what type of facts are those? If you grew up with hoes in your zapper toes, you celebrate the minute you was having dope. I'm like, fuck critics, you can kiss my whole asshole. If you don't like my lyrics, you can press fast forward. I beef with radio, if I don't play they show, they don't play my hits. Well, I don't give a shit, so. Rap mags try and use my black ass, so advertise can give them more cash for ads. Fuckers, I don't know what you take me as. Probably the biggest endorsement for the new Daw Age came in 2004 when Liam Howlett revealed that the Prodigy's new album, Always Outnumbered, Never Outguns, the first in seven years, was made almost entirely on a Mac laptop using Reason. He had hit a creative slump and felt uninspired by the rooms of hardware he had accumulated. The flexibility and versatility of this new way of making music gave him the creative spark he needed. I think I was going through my studio, it felt like... um Every time I entered into my room in my house, it felt like it was like closing in on me a bit, do you know what I mean? And I felt like the record company were looking through the windows, even though it was on like the fifth floor, do you know what I mean? It was like a bit weird, and so I, I thought, I've got to get out of this room. And that was when I brought the laptop and just uh, felt free then, do you know what I mean? I kind of, I grabbed like five or six bits of equipment in my studio, and then I could go to New York, I could go to, you know, set up a studio in London, I could write in my bed, anywhere in the garden, and it just became an enjoyable process, which is what it always should be, do you know what I mean? This is Spitfire from The Prodigy. From the mid-2000s on, music producers around the world ditched their hardware for DAWs and laptops. And this is more or less the situation we find ourselves in today. While researching this podcast, I came across an excellent video on YouTube called The History and Sampling of Music by Jack Pearson. In it, Jack succinctly sums up in 12 minutes what I'm spending hours doing. Jack's video has less than 300 views, so please go and check it out. I sampled a part of Jack's video where he sums up the current state of sampling. I used an app on my phone called Caustic, which I paid €3 Euros for in 2011. Caustic has 60 times the sampling capability of a Fairlight CMI, but costs 0.01% of the price. Nowadays things are a lot simpler because if you own a computer or a smartphone, you own a sampler. This means that regardless of any previous musical experience, just about anyone can create music with whatever samples they can think of. Likewise, digital audio workstations, or DAWs, software that allows you to record, mix and master music are more accessible than ever. There are many free DAWs available such as GarageBand, Pro Tools First and Ableton Lite, which anyone can easily learn due to the endless tutorials available online. 
usually alongside a paid industry standard version like Logic Pro, Pro Tools and Ableton Live, which offer more features. All doors come with built-in simulations of hardware called VST plugins, meaning you can emulate any drum machine, synthesizer or digital effect with a virtual interface as opposed to a specific physical machine. They also come with huge copyright-free sample libraries allowing you to create sampled music easily without any extra hassle. There are also many websites that offer subscription fees in return for massive royalty-free sample libraries, which you can also sell your own samples on. The last step of our journey is a very recent innovation that came about through the work of Lord of the Rings director Peter Jackson, restoring footage of the Beatles for the Get Back documentary. This is stem separation. Now software can analyse a piece of music and extract the various elements, the drums, the bass, the vocals and so on, and present them as separate tracks. It can be a little glitchy at the moment, but I'm sure it will only improve. It sounds like this. Backed up against the wall, talking all that jive. Can't step back at all. But why should anyone want to sample somebody else's sound? Is this just a case of artistic laziness, or is it a whole new kind of art? I love sampling, and I think it's a real art form, but I've covered it in other episodes, particularly episode 12 about hip-hop and episode 5 on drum bakes. So for the second part of this episode, I'm going to look at presets on synths, drum machines, or tracks from specially produced sample packs. Basically pressing a button on a machine, a melody or a beat comes out and the musician goes, yup, that'll do. The first one will be easy to spot as it went viral a few months ago. It's the Rock One preset from the Suzuki Omnicord OM300. It's the Gorillaz Clint Eastwood. The source of the foundation of the tune was revealed in a recent interview by Zane Lowe with Damon Albarn. It just came like that. That's it, that's the preset. It's the Rock One preset. But <laughs> 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 it gets even more. Wholesale. That's it. Wholesale. That's the whole Wholesale. Song. Clint Eastwood was a worldwide hit that charted in 17 countries in 2001. It's coming on, it's coming on, it's coming on, it's coming on. 
It's coming on, it's coming on 
The next tune is also from 2001 and the preset is from the Emu Protheus 2000 rack sound module and is included in a collection of guitar sounds. See if you spot anything you recognize. It's UK Garage, Ayanapa Anthem, Do You Really Like It? by DJ Pied Piper and the Masters of Ceremonies. Enter the dragon. Do you really like it? Do you really like it? We're loving it, loving it, loving it. We're loving it like this. Do you really like it? Is it, is it wicked? We're loving it, loving it, loving it We're loving it like that You know the score, rhyme so good I deserve an encore All about the style we bring, we make you laugh like when you was a little child again Smooth, that's how I roll, I got so much soul I wanna step into the party, I wanna move somebody, I wanna move somebody We're the masters of the ceremony, what does it take to be a garage MC? Personality, originality, on a microphone it got to be The capital U in the K-N-O will get down Represents out London town, pipe pipers on the decks Rock the disco tip and I'm back in his sack This one's for the heads out there Party people, can you hear me clear? If you like it, let me see your hands in the air If you don't, y'all get the hell out of here Bass is kicking, drums is drumming When you hear did it, I'm coming Sharp P represents the West of London DT, Piper, Melody and Unknown We're loving it, loving it, loving it We're loving it like this We're loving it, loving it, loving it We're loving it like that DT, Melody, Sharky P Unknown to make you rock Sing, we come to sing And dance till we drop Do you really like it? Do you really like it? We're loving it, loving it, loving it We're loving it like this Do you really like it? Is it, is it wicked? We're loving it, loving it, loving it We're loving it like that Do you really like it? Do you really like it? We're loving it, loving it, loving it We're loving it like this Do you really like it? Is it, is it wicked? We're loving it, loving it, loving it We're loving it like that Make you hide to the sky. Chop, don't ever stop. Put a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Chop, don't ever stop. Put a little bit of this, a little bit of that. A little bit of fun, a little bit of joke, a little bit of dream, a little bit of smoke. Chop, I don't want to turn to. Let's go, let's go. Ma, 
Next is a program drum break from GarageBand, the music software that comes free with every Mac, desktop or laptop. It's called Vintage Funk Kit 3. Millions of people had access to this drum break, but it took producer Tricky Stewart to turn it into a hit in 27 countries in 2007. This is Umbrella by Rihanna. No clouds in my stones. Let it rain, I hide your plane in the bank. Coming down like a Dow Jones. When the clouds come, we go. We Rockefellers, we fly higher than weather, and cheap vibes are better. You know me, in anticipation for precipitation, stack chips with a rainy day. Jay, Rain Man is back with Little Miss Sunshine. Rihanna, where you at? You have my heart, and we'll never be worlds apart. Maybe in magazines, but you still be my star. Baby, cause in the dark, you can't see shiny cars. Twenty-six years before Umbrella, there was another huge hit based on a drum machine preset. I let William Kirk from Reverb introduce it. The first thing you'll hear is the noted drum beat that is from the CompuRhythm CR78. So this is a classic vintage piece of equipment. Released in 1978 by Roland, the song that we're talking about today features the first preset on the drum machine, Rock One. No doubt about it, it's the drum beat. It's I Can't Go For That from Hall & Oates. Daryl Hall explained how the song came together on the Soda Jerker on Songwriting podcast. Yeah, No Can Do was written all in one shot. That's the closest I've come to being a one-man band. I turned on this ridiculously simple rock and roll beat on uh, Roland CompuRhythm, which is <laughs> this ancient instrument. It wasn't ancient then, it was modern then. And uh, then I started playing that bass line on this organ and there it is the bass line you hear and then i started playing the right hand and playing those chords and uh 
that's when I realized I had a song that was interesting. It just kind of came together like that. And I had this idea for a guitar line and got John to play the guitar line. I sang it to him and he played it. And then uh, I went in the vocal booth and sang these nonsense lyrics in the melody that you hear. And uh, that's it. That's how the song came about all at once. This is I Can't Go For That, No Can Do by Hall & Oates from 1981.
Zero G have been producing sample CDs and packs for music producers since the early 90s. Can you hear anything familiar in this? Data file 1 underscore 64, vocal underscore adlib. <laughs> It's German via Trinidad singer Hadaway and his 1993 Euro cheese smash hit, What is Love? And listen to data file one underscore twenty four underscore oriental underscore vocal. Hey, It's the Prodigy's rave anthem from their 1993 album Music for the Jilted Generation. This is One Love.
Another sample pack that was used in a very innovative way was Killer Vocals Volume 2, Black to Black from 1996. See if you know any of these clips. Takes two to make it right. Save our love. Love is the answer. Caress me. Hub. Decision. I'm crazy, don't do it, get down on me, step off, my eyes are on you, go with the flow. Those are all parts of the smoothest UK garage tune of all time, Sincere by MJ Cole. He explained how he made it on Scuba's Not A Diving podcast. Who did the vocal though? That's from a sample CD. There was a sample CD called Killer Vocals 2, and it was just t tons of little bits of vocals. Really? Yeah, and it's actually... The, the the lady singing on it, it's actually two different women, Nova Casper and JD. They were kind of the vocalists on this sample CD. And if you actually look into all the different bits of that Sincere record, it's actually two different voices. It's just bits from all over the sample CD sort of strung together. Um, so yeah, I did that in my bedroom. I'd just like you to know that your favourite podcast host was up until three in the morning, searching through the 180 or so minute long tracks of Killer Vocals 2 to find you the sincere vocals. You're welcome. This is Sincere by MJ Cole from 1998. <laughs>
to Zero G and their Spices of India CD pack. The next song used three clips from this pack to create one of the most innovative and fresh sounding tunes of the early 2000s. There was Larka 1.1. <laughs> Tommy Tabla 7. And Classic Tommy Loop 0.3. Yes, it's Get Your Freak On from 2001, produced by Timberland and Missy Elliott. They don't use the sample completely raw. Instream.wav from Mumbai breaks down the process behind it. Pitch it down by three semitones. Pitch the last note down by five semitones. And four semitones down for every seventh bar for a change.
scram I told y'all mother Y'all can't stop me now Listen to me now I'm lasting 20 rounds And if you want me Then come on get me now Is you with me now Then biggie biggie bounce I know you dig the way I switch my style Holla holla People sing around Now people gather around Now people jump around The last one is absolutely beautiful and one that I loved learning about because it connected the world and how we are at our best when we share our cultures and influence each other to new levels of creativity. It's another rock preset from the Casio MT40 keyboard. It sounds like this.
preset became known in Jamaica as the Sling Tang Rhythm and it started the genre of electronic reggae known as Raga. And since the first release using it, Wayne Smith's Under Me Sling Tang, in 1985, it has been used as the basis for over 500 songs. The Sling Tang Rhythm came into being in Japan in 1980 when freshly graduated inventor and musicologist Akudo Hiroko was hired by Casio to compose presets for their new keyboard. Akuda was not really thinking about reggae at all, as she explained on Jamaican TV show Smile Jamaica. Um, Okuda, where did that idea come from to, to come up with this rhythm? And in Jamaica, it's called the Sleng Teng Rhythm. I don't know if you know that, Okuda. But where did that idea come from? And did you know that it was like a, a reggae rhythm or, or no? It, uh... When she was listening to the music in the 1970s, it, it was particularly um, rock, rock music. In the, so in the 70s, in the 70s um, she was listening to predominantly um, rock music. And, but she didn't know that it, it sounded like reggae because reggae, she found out about reggae afterwards. But even though the name is known in Jamaica, it became known as Sling Teng Rhythm, the name she gave it was Rock. So guys, the Sling Teng Rhythm, the original name was Rock. That yeah. was the name she gave it. Akuda says she was inspired by a famous UK 70s rock musician, which sent music fans searching for a suitable song. The general consensus is that the influence came from David Bowie's Hang On To Yourself from his 1972 Ziggy Stardust album. <laughs> What's cool is that Bowie said that his guitar riff was inspired by Eddie Cochran's Something Else from 1959. Oh, look at that. Here she comes. So a white American, who was obviously influenced by early rock and roll from black Americans, influenced an English musician, who in turn influenced a Japanese composer, who in turn inspired Jamaican musicians to create an entirely new genre called Raga or Digital Dancehall. Finding beautiful stories like this is why I make podcasts. This is Under Me Slang Tang by Wayne Smith and produced by Noel Davey. There's probably another podcast to be made about how a Jamaican ended up with such an Irish name and King Jammy in 1985. Go 
Thank you for making it through to the end of episode 17 of Fenster's Funky Sevens. If you'd like to get in contact with the podcast, please do. Tell me about some other preset hits that you know. Tell me about the other sampling machines that I forgot. Tell me about your favorite samples. Whatever you want to talk about, you can contact the podcast on fensterdj at gmail.com or fensterdj on Twitter, Instagram, or Blue Sky. That's all for this episode. Take care and bye-bye. The argument that a sampler is no different from any other instrument is absurd. It's absurd because no other instrument allows you simply and easily to take someone else's life's work and put your name on it. Perhaps it's a little easier to take a piece of music than it is to learn how to play a guitar or something. True. Just like it's probably easier to snap a picture with that camera than it is to uh, actually paint a picture. But what the photographer is to the painter is what the modern producer and DJ and computer musician is to the instrumentalist.